Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. Consumers want more variety. Governments are demanding sustainability. And supply chains, they're more complex than ever before. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. Welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast. I'm Laura Foti, and I'll be your host. Since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by how things are made. And at Specrite, I get to work with product and packaging leaders to help them spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across food and beverage, beauty, consumer goods, and industrials and manufacturing. We're going to go beyond the shelf and get a behind the scenes look into the things you use every day and even the ones you don't. Where do the best ideas come from? How are leaders making sustainability goals a reality? What trends are here to stay? And what's just a passing fad? We're going to ask our guests all this and more. So be sure to subscribe and get ready to go Beyond the Shelf. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast, where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I am Laura Foti, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Ron Bourne about the rise of robots in manufacturing, which is a topic that I think a lot of us have been uh, thinking about these days, especially as it relates to AI and automation and other things. Uh, so excited to chat with him. Ron is a senior technical specialist with over 20 years of experience in the automation and robotics packaging industry. He's passionate about machinery and the programming that drives it and has worked on projects for some of the world's most well-known brands like Costco, Cody, Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, Lauder, uh, Siemens, and even the U.S. Mint. Uh, Ron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Laura. It's nice to be here. It's. I'm always so interested in learning how the products that we love are made, and you really have had a front row seat uh, to that via via the robotics industry. How did you get your start? I have. So I started with, it started back in high school for me, and I went into a uh, course at the uh, Votech school here in our, in my neck of the woods, it's called Votech, uh, also career and technologies. There was a two-year course in machining that I had gotten into, and that got me started in the in being excited about machinery how it all ties together what makes our world kind of work it's uh you know in the machine trades you get to see a little bit of everything now during that course and and there on after i had gotten myself into a couple of manufacturing companies where they made custom machinery for the packaging industry and that's kind of just where I've stayed for the past 20 years. I was in a machine shop that was uh, considered a job shop in Pennsylvania that made uh, parts and pieces for these machines. They would build to print. So if a customer, big customer called up and wanted a machine built, they would already have the design and the drawings. And this uh, company would make the pieces for it, assemble the machine, sometimes wire it, but then it would be shipped out to the end user and someone else would do the install and the commissioning of that system. So I got to see that part of it, the very beginnings of how a machine is put together. I then went out west to Seattle, Washington. I was out there for nine years in a machine shop. That was uh, a different type of machine shop where I worked for the railroad and made uh, big uh, switches and crossings for locomotives to go across. 
I was out there for about nine years, came back to Pennsylvania, where I am now, and got a position at a job at a company that makes custom automated packaging equipment. So it was kind of back to kind of where I left off at while I was in Pennsylvania. I got back into that, into their machine shop, and I was uh, not in their machine shop for very long. I want to say it lasted about six months in their machine shop. Things were a little bit slow in the machine shop, but not at the company. So I would spend my days out assisting the uh, floor personnel on making the equipment, putting it together, transitioned into some of the electrical aspects of it, wiring up the uh, sensors and switches and motors. And then the uh, one of the owners of that company, Joe Hurley, kind of took me under his wing and mentored me in the programming aspect of these machines. And up until that point, my programming had been uh, more in the CNC realm of things in a machine shop. And robot and PLC programming is uh, quite a bit different, but has kind of the same the same flow, if you will. You, you need to program it in a logical manner for it to perform what you want it to do. So he took me under his wing and got me well, working towards being able to put these machines, install these machines, test them once they were up and running to some extent, add some programming, change some programming along the way. And I started going out on the road to install these machines and to troubleshoot them. Along the way there, I was learning how to obviously write my own code and make machines work from the ground up. And that drove me into, uh, still at, with Joe Hurley, that drove me into starting new machines on our floor following them through um, conception all the way through being delivered, installed, running, and training the personnel at the other end of the line at the manufacturing facility, be that the U.S. Mint or Procter & Gamble, Estee Lauder, Costco. So you've seen every aspect of machinery, essentially. You've touched you know, from the very beginning to programming it and telling that machine what to do to all the way to handing it off to that you know, person who's going to use it. I think what most of us don't realize when I think about, you know, I consider myself a layperson even, and you think about, I don't know, when, when Costco needs a new piece of equipment, they just order off the catalog, right? But the reality is that machinery is so custom. And I assume that that's part of what makes it challenging. You know, why, how has packaging machinery evolved over the years and why is this so specific to each customer? So machinery has evolved quite a bit over the years. The, the way machines used to be, the, they didn't have PLCs. They what, had, what does had PLC wiring. mean? What does PLC mean for most people? Yeah. Yes, a PLC is a programmable logic controller. So it is the uh, computer that lives within the machine or the brains behind the operation. That's what you would today put your code into, and it will then talk with or communicate with the other devices on that system. So if it tells a, an air cylinder to extend, the electrical signals get out to that air cylinder, tell it to extend. Uh, then um, what it was before that, though, it was a bunch of wires and relays and mechanical timers, and they were kind of jammed in a box, and that's what made a big mechanical piece of equipment work. And that piece of equipment would be 
a lot of times cam driven. So there would be cams on there that when a cam got to a certain spot, it would trip a sensor, maybe a mechanical type sensor that would then open up a relay that would then turn the air cylinder on, make the air cylinder fire, for example. That got changed out to PLCs came around and the reason they're programmed in a, in a, a language called ladder logic, most, uh, most commonly called ladder logic. And when you look at a ladder logic program, it replicates what was the relays and the wires inside of a old school type of a cabinet that had the timers and the relays and the wires. So it was some familiarity to the manufacturers of these systems or the mechanics working on them. And to this day, that's, that's, we use ladder logic quite a bit along with other languages, of course. The, uh, the big changes now are a lot less moving parts, whereas you'll have a robot in place of a fixed or mechanical pick in place. And a mechanical pick in place, if you could imagine, had a start point and an end point, and it would always go from point A to point B over and over again, very repeatedly. Now with a robot, you can adjust that start point, you can adjust that end point, and you can have positions in between anywhere that you would like for different operations. So that's what allowed the evolution of a big mechanical monster that was picking up packaging, putting it back down into a carton, sending the carton along the way to maybe a whole other cell that did a vision inspect or did a labeling operation to a much smaller footprint of a machine using a robot that can pick up this part. It can go over to a labeler, over to a vision inspect, have all that process done before it puts it into a carton and sends it down the line. That's fascinating. I mean, so essentially a few things have happened. First is the robots got brains, right? And they speak a language, the ladder, ladder logic. So they went from just having wires to being programmed and then being able to communicate with other parts of your manufacturing facility. And then the second thing is these robots have also become extremely flexible and also a smaller footprint. So you can have them doing potentially more than one job, have them changing jobs maybe more often than you would have had in the past when it was a more fixed system. Um, and so that really has changed how companies think about their assembly lines, processes. It's really transformed not just, you know, the one job that robot was doing, but how they actually think about how they, how they ship or produce that uh, product. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And it has, it has changed the, the landscape of, of manufacturing facilities by by quite a bit in in the fact that they can change to different products much faster much easier they can save on energy uh, energy consumption can now be less because of the fact that you don't need quite as many gizmos if you will to do the same operation that you can do with with uh, much less equipment yeah and i mean I think the changeover process is also something that's extremely important. You know, I've been around manufacturing, you know, a few years now, and I always hear about the cost of a changeover, right? You still have to stop a line. You have to set up a new, you know, if there's a new product, you know, what are the specs of that product? Because it might be smaller or larger. And how does it impact that? You've done a lot of work in the beauty industry. Um, you know, why is that? I know their rate of product change is very high. Is that 
What is that difference in speed? Is that what's led them to be kind of be early adopters in this area? So the reason that I was doing quite a bit of work in the beauty industry and continue to is that the companies that I've worked for, those were their customers. How they originally came about um, was from, I believe, from filling and capping uh, operations, whereas in the beauty industry, as you know, there's powders, there's liquids, and they need to get into containers. They need caps put on the containers. And then... A lot of the time at the back years ago, many years ago, they had people taking that capped or filled product and packaging it. That started the evolution into, well, let's get this this device here to pick it up and put it down for us so we can do many at a time and get uh, some production off of the end of this line, which has then evolved to uh, robotics. And I've gotten to see in the beauty industry, I've gotten to see that go from basically the capper and the filler with a conveyor and a lot of uh, people on the end of the line trying to fill cases up as quickly as they can to uh, what we'll call hard automation, which is more of a pick and place, statically driven. And exactly what you were talking about, the changeover would then take, could take hours, could take, uh, you know, quite a bit of time because the next product may need a different type of a gripper, a different size of a gripper. It, the next product may come out of the capper or the filler at a three up, uh, three at a time or six at a time. And when you change product to product, that quantity could change. So therefore the, the tooling that would pick up or, and, or put down these parts and pieces would need changed, which would require a mechanic, some tools, taking the line down. Now there are lines that will change their product actually on the fly. Whereas you can change your recipe, start introducing the new product, and there will be sensors, cameras, uh, fixturing. The robots will self-change over. The robots can go and get a different head that it needs that's in a fixture. It knows where that is. It'll go and acquire that itself, come back to its pick or place position, wait for the new product to show up, and start packaging that product. So it's really come a long way in just what I've gotten to witness in the past 20 years. I mean, that's amazing. You know, the idea, it's almost like I think of like a screwdriver and there's the different heads and literally the robot can change its own parts as it adapts. I mean, to me, that's, it's it maybe what we all would have expected as consumers because our lives are so digital and connected, but this is really just coming into the world of manufacturing, which is exciting. Um, you know, people often use the terms robotics and automation maybe interchangeably. Um, how would you describe each of those and, and what's really the difference? So the way that I would describe that is in automation is more of a big uh, umbrella, if you will, which robotics lives under. So automation can be anything from the equipment that we're speaking about to your email right now. Your micro Outlook 365 is using, you can use automation with that and automatically sort your, your emails. So I feel like automation and robotics uh, go kind of hand in hand. You're automating the robots is what you are doing. You're, you are... Um, maybe bringing in different conveyors and different devices, cameras, labelers, uh, inkjet printers, and then using the robot to perform functions with those devices. 
Mm-hmm. It's that almost like automation is the conductor and then, you know, the robots are the orchestra, right? And the, and someone's yes. got to tell, uh, tell, tell them all what to do. Um, yeah. how has packaging robotics and automation impacted, uh, companies in general? So in general, the, the automation and robotics has, uh, it's allowing the companies to utilize their workers and produce more product as we have more people on our planet now, quite a bit more people. It, uh, it, we require more product at the end of the line. So automation and robotics allows you to get more of a quantity at the quality you are expecting off of the end of that line. It also keeps, uh, it keeps uh, workers out of harm's way. Today in the news, they were talking about using the, the robot, um, and they consider it a robot because it's programmable and they direct it, uh, camera, it's a submarine camera at the Fukushima plant, and they're inspecting some of the damage done, and they found some issues at the, the base of that plant from that earthquake and tsunami. So you could imagine who wants to be the diver putting on the suit and hoping that nothing leaks and going down there to, to do that inspection. Yeah, that's a pretty extreme case, of course, of, of using a robot to keep people safe. But there are robots used for welding operations and uh, keeping people from getting burned and flashing their eyes. Also used for lifting, for palletizing, for uh, which you know keeps the uh, lifting injuries down. Also cuts and scrapes. If you have a robot doing all of this work, your people aren't in the, that uh, hazardous environment. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I've gotten to walk a few factory floors, a lot of packaging facilities too, thanks to to Matthew Wright, and. I'm always struck because in every facility I've walked in, there's always a big sign that says a number of days and then since the last accident, because worker safety is so critical when you're in a manufacturing facility and so many things are moving and there's things that are extremely heavy or potentially dangerous. Um, and so robots do serve a great purpose in taking jobs where people would typically be in harm's way or robots do things a lot faster than we can at scale. They don't get tired. Um, they don't, you know, hopefully make those kind of mistakes. So it, that the safety piece, I think is one that's undervalued. I think the conversation and what I'd love for you to get into now is, is how do robots collaborate with people? Because oftentimes the discussion is almost like an either or you're having a person do this job or a robot do the job. And maybe there's a negative perception that the robots are, are going to take everyone's jobs. Right. But how do you actually see people collaborating with robots? So robots certainly do take away some jobs that people were doing. And again, it could be for safety reasons, like we just spoke, or it could be product repeatability and quality reasons. A robot in a vision system is going to pass along exactly what it's told to pass along, nothing less, nothing more. So it takes away some of the ambiguity in, in, uh, in a quality inspection, if you will. The way that I see robots and people interacting is has that's also changed over over the years. And today it's more where a person can be working on a line next to a robot now that they do have collaborative robots, meaning they can work with people. So there's a risk analysis done as far as the person being in the vicinity of that robot, what the robot is actually doing, can it harm the person that's near it? Uh, and they'll work to get, uh, together to help with um, heavier loads, to help with speed, uh, again, to help with uh, inspecting inspections and keeping the project moving forward. 
And that was, uh, you know, it's, there, there's a lot of studies out there. There are some studies out there and no really, it's really hard to nail down how many jobs are being lost to robots compared to how many are being created because of, because of robots, because it adds a whole new subset of, of positions available for people that are programming them or are working on them, maintenance personnel, people that build the robots that are getting ordered, the people that are making the parts that go into the robots that are being ordered. Uh, so it's really difficult to say, to, to, to nail down some kind of a number saying how many are being taken away because of this, because yeah. there's so many more being added and, and that's that sort of thing. The COVID had shined a big spotlight on the importance of having automation and robots helping people due to the fact that you can keep distancing between people when needed, like in a COVID situation, uh, in any kind of just during cold and flu season, really, if you can keep people from having to sit next to right next to each other and working, if you can separate them with some robots doing some of that uh, manufacturing, the the company itself will see a more steady throughput of product rather than, well, this week our product throughput was really low because we had half of the facility out with the flu or with a cold or whatever was, you know, happened to be going around. That's a great point. And, you know, I remember during COVID too, and still, if you go to any manufacturing facility, oftentimes there's help wanted signs and there's, you know, a huge amount of demand for a workforce and, and a lot of folks aren't able to get talent these days. So robots also fill this gap where maybe there's no desire for someone to do this specific job. Um, and so you're able to kind of augment your facility that way. I don't know if you can speak to that at all. Yeah. I've, other than, uh, parroting basically what you had just said, the places that I go, they are looking for help in the worst ways. They are looking for help from folks that are on the floor doing uh, the manual labor all the way up to the engineering departments. They're looking for for help. So uh, yeah. it feels like to me that the the rate at which we are automating and making product and the rate at which we as a population are purchasing that product and utilizing that product, we are creating more jobs than it feels like we have people to put into those jobs at this point. And that's where automation and robotics has been uh, growing and flourishing. Uh, yeah. Robot sales have been, have been uh, pretty high, very high, especially since COVID. There's two other news stories as well that, that make me wonder about the role of robotics and really the opportunity. Um, the first was, uh, an article came out that in Italy, they're looking at training and building robots that can take care of an aging population, um, because they don't have enough younger people that are, you know, filling caretaker roles. And so they're looking at, can robots do things like dispense you medication or keep you company or interact and be that interface with you and a doctor, which I think is really interesting. Again, more of that uh, labor shortage. And then the other is just a few weeks ago, the New York Times did a huge investigative report about the use of child labor by many leading companies in the U.S. Um, and, and a lot of it's because they're having trouble getting workers. And so some some of them are... Um, resorting to this. And, and I think we all agree that that's not right or 
ideal, but it doesn't change the fact that they need um, they need people working in these facilities. I can't help but think that again, this is a space where the more we can, you know, automate uh, and, 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 you know, reduce the need to rely on uh, labor usage that might not be appropriate. It just seems like a huge opportunity as a society as well. Yeah, that is correct. That is correct. It does seem like there, there are, I think that child labor uh, story might have been about the precious metals, maybe that they were mining, that they are mining today for the batteries that we use in everything, right down to the uh, cell phone and the, and the AirPods we're using for this for this interview. And um, the if, if we could figure out a way to start automating that and getting that done sooner than later, yeah, it's better for everybody. For yeah. Sure. Um. You know, robotics, a lot of people have talked, and this is a, a huge passion of mine. You know, I started my career at GE and many years ago in a lot of manufacturing at that time, a lot of people were moving to China to go into the Chinese market and get that opportunity. Um, but a lot of folks are saying that robotics might be the way to bring more manufacturing back to the U.S. Um, you know, why do you think that's the case? That is correct. And, and the case would be that if we can bring the manufacturing back to the U.S. and let's uh, let's say we did not use robotics, the price of those goods would more than likely go up quite significantly because here in the U.S. we do treat our employees fairly. We give uh, benefits and fair wages, living wages. And overseas where a lot of these manufacturers are, that's not always the case. Some of the manufacturers, their governments are propping up their the money to fund making their products. So bringing them back here is a great idea. It's good for us. It's, it's good for, uh, good for our, you know, our business. And we'll need to automate that process in order to keep the price down of making the product because we're not going to be able to use the, like we talked about earlier, the child labor, so to speak. We're not going to have 10 people or 20 people standing on a line to make this product if we're going to sell it at a price that the consumer can afford. Yeah. And I think what's important about this conversation as well, you know, I know you and I are passionate about technology and we've both followed the chat GP, uh, GPT news and it's like, you know, AI, everything's going to keep changing. And so, you know, everyone is going to have to embrace technology at some point, no matter what it is you're doing, whether it's working in a factory, being a marketer, um, you know, this technology is going to change the way we all work. And I think the, the point that you've made is you have to learn how to work with it, not against it. Right. And I look at your career as the perfect example of that, where you started out, you know, more on the making of machines and now, you know, you've learned how to tell them what to do kind of. Right. And so I'm sure you've built and developed a new skill set uh, over the course of the years doing that. Yes, I absolutely have. And different uh different platforms that we use for our equipment do use different programming languages so i'm constantly learning something new uh, just about every day figuring out uh, a new piece of equipment and right now with it being difficult to uh, get product uh, here to the us especially electronics we've been we've had to get creative on some of the parts and pieces that we've used we've used uh, some you know uh, human machine interfaces some touch screens from a different manufacturer than we usually use because we were able to get them. We were able to get them quickly in time to keep the, the project on schedule while well, they use a different programming language. So you 
need to learn that. Now, these days, that is a lot easier than it was 10 or 15 years ago, where it came with a big paper manual and maybe a, maybe a phone number that you could call. Now I can go on to, if it, you know, Google, but greatly being replaced by chat GPT, ask the questions that I want and get a, an answer close enough to get me moving forward, which is, which is huge. I'm excited to see where the AI and the chat GPT, I'm excited to see where that takes my position even where, where we're going because it wasn't too long ago that these systems that we make they're they're rather they can be rather rather large systems and not too long ago you would be spending most of your time in the mechanical and the electrical phase of the system and there was some programming and then that became more and more nowadays the mechanical and the electrical is much faster than it used to be because of AutoCAD or because of a SolidWorks rather with 3D design and with being able to print parts you know, with 3D printing, it, it makes their processes a little bit faster and the programming has got a little more intensive or extensive maybe that whereas it takes longer now to program. I see with this chat GPT and the way things are moving that that should start to come back down and all of the processes should start to get faster. Should, you know, so at the end of the day, that means that we can produce a system in a shorter amount of time for, you know, for our end user. That's fascinating. Yeah, because it can take you months to build a machine. And people don't realize, like, if you want to build, you know, it's interesting because the CHIPS Act was passed, which is all about making semiconductors in the U.S. again, right, as a competitive advantage. It's not so easy to just build a factory, you know. It takes right. a lot of time to build that machine, install it, test it, get it up and running, um, and then, you know, stringing all those lines together. So the idea yeah. that we can keep doing this faster is really going to be a game changer. Oh, absolutely. And because of your uh, one of your podcasts that you have done with Car with Gary Cohen, mm -hmm. I reached out to him just to uh, get to know him a little bit. And we had a couple of good conversations over on LinkedIn. We had a couple of good conversations because it got me thinking that if uh, if this uh, if EPR when EPR gets passed, it's something like that's going to need to move us into the future to start to uh, minimize the packaging materials that we're using in some way that's going to directly affect these systems that that i build or that other manufacturers build because that packaging is going to look quite a bit different than it does today you know it's uh getting rid of maybe getting rid of the plastics or making the packaging smaller you're going to have to handle the parts differently it's going to be quite a big difference and i think we're going to start seeing that in the in the very in the very near future yeah, that's a, a perfect segue to my last question. You know, at Spec, right, we're really passionate about specifications and we believe everything's a spec, right? There's specs, you, you deal with machinery and equipment specifications. There's specifications for packaging. Why is it so important that people understand the specifications from the machine all the way to the product? Well, what I've seen in, in, my, uh, in my career here is we will design and build a machine to a customer spec. Well, that'd be the engineer's spec. And we will build that machine to their spec, have it running, F8 factory acceptance tested here at our facility, send it out to their facility. Sometimes it'll get there and we'll run the actual product on it for their startup and for their site acceptance test. 
I've also seen it where we get out there and before we even can do a site acceptance test, they've changed the product that's going to go on there. And the packaging, uh, the packaging personnel that come up with the, the designs, the labeling, the pictures, even the dimensions of the cartons or tubes or whatever it is that this product's going into, they would have changed it and didn't necessarily relay that information down the line to get to us. And sometimes you can make it work with what you have. And sometimes it's back to the drawing board, depending on how big of a change it is. Vision is a, is a big one. They will have products that they would like to have vision inspected. They'll send us products to look at, products to work through, and you do your best to, to give yourself the worst condition so that you, you would hope you're never at that spot. So you give yourself the worst condition to find this part in They'll bring you a new part that maybe it's clear instead of red or black. Maybe it's shiny instead of a matte finish and not thinking, not knowing our end of what we do, thinking that's going to be a big difference. Well, it could be, it could keep the line from running for days or weeks until you come up with a a solution to that. It really is amazing. You know, I remember when I asked someone for an equipment specification, once they went and got me an actual blueprint like on a piece of paper that was printed out because a lot of, when you look at a facility, um, they try to keep this equipment running for as long as possible because it's expensive. And to your point though, knowing what that equipment can do, what's, what's its capacity, its capabilities versus the products you want to run. You have people referencing blueprints. Well, is that even the right one? Did you modify that machine since it got built? You probably did probably broke down a few times. The, the, the pace of change between products, you know, consumers demanding so much variety. You talked about beauty alone. You know, all of a sudden, what if matte, a matte package is in versus shiny? The packaging engineer doesn't know that impacts the ability for that machine or robot to do its job. These, these things are all interconnected today in a way they weren't 10, 20, 30 years ago. And what I, what I'm seeing is that we need to speak the language of machines. You know, every, all this data has to be digital. You know, you talk about how you program that robot and tell it what to do. Why can't we tell that robot, Hey, here's the digital spec of this package. You know, I imagine a world where all of this stuff is communicating in real time and more interconnected than ever. Uh, and to me, that's exciting because I think it prevents a lot of the challenges that you just mentioned. Yes, that is correct. And I see that going that direction right now. Uh, there's one of our customers packages chocolate and they're 10 pound chocolate bars that go off to other uh, manufacturers that make the candy out of them. And even there, they're data driven pretty heavily. They have a, an ignition system that is capturing all of their data for their machines and feeding it up to uh, to a main PC that's keeping track of their efficiencies, how much product they're making, how much they're sending out, what's being rejected. They are doing all of that in order to try to get to what you're saying so that they can say, okay, we're going to move to this packaging or this product over here on this line because it runs better over there. I mean, that's what, uh, that's what their, their goal is. I love it. You know, the industrial internet, it's here, it's here to stay and it's only going to get better and smarter. Um, yeah. I could go on all day about this stuff, but I want to be mindful well. of your time. So I want to close out with my favorite segment, which is rapid fire questions. The first is what's your favorite product right now? 
Right now, I believe my favorite product is, uh, if it's in the manufacturing industry, it's Fanuc Robots. I've been working quite a bit with them, and I really do enjoy the relationship that I have with Fanuc. So uh, I would say it's Fanuc Robots right now. Nice. What makes them special to you? The ease of use. I've been using them for 15 years out of my, my 20 plus in, in the industry. But the uh, the ease of use, the repeatability, the reliability, and the customer support that I get when when I do have a question or when there's a new, uh, you know, a new device out that they have. I love that. What's your favorite packaging trend right now? I, my favorite packaging trend is there's a company called Origin. They make uh, workwear, they make boots. And the reason that they're my favorite trend right now is that they make everything here in the U.S. Everything is locally sourced here in the U.S. and uh, manufactured here in the U.S. And it's a pretty cool, pretty cool company. I'm, I'm excited to see more companies head that direction. All right. That's awesome. Our last one is Kill, Keep and Change. I have to actually find my... Uh, let, me, let me hold on and grab my my list of items. You know what? I cleaned my office, but so we're just going to have to pick three random things. All right. Let me see. Go for it. Three random things. All right. The first is going to be Tootsie Rolls. All right. The second is going to be a beach chair. And what can the third be? Hmm. Let's make the third... I want to do something equipment or machinery related. Let's make the third a boiler, like All one right. that would heat up water for you. Okay. So you got to kill one, keep one, change one. You got Tootsie Rolls, beach chair, and boiler. What do you kill? What do you keep? What do you change? I think we kill, I kill the Tootsie Rolls because they stick to my teeth horribly. So we'll just kill them. The, I agree. The beach chair we keep because who doesn't like going to the beach and having a nice spot to sit other than directly in the sand, maybe. Uh, boiler, I guess we could change the boiler, but I'm not sure how much by how much. I would say we make a boiler more uh, more sustainable, less energy usage. Boilers use quite a bit of energy, but they serve a very important purpose. So we wouldn't want to get rid of them. I would say that we would make them a little more energy efficient. I love it. And I think, I think they're going that direction, especially here in California with all the AQMD standards. Um, well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us. How can people follow you? Uh, thank you, Laura. Yes, people can follow me on LinkedIn. They can find, find me just by typing in my name, Ron Bourne, into LinkedIn. And that's, uh, I don't do a whole lot on the other social media. So that's where, that's where I would say they would find me. Awesome. So throw all your robotic and automation questions over to, over to Ron. Uh, and for those who are listening, we want to hear from you. Uh, what are you liking? Who should we have on next? You can hit me up at Laura at specright.com. Uh, and if you like the show, give us a rating. It helps people find us. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate it very much. Beyond the Shelf is presented by Specright, the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With Specrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specrite.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T dot com.